Folks, do you love movies? The good ones? Even the bad ones everyone told you not to like? It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. The team at Super Yaki loves movies so much that they've dedicated every waking moment of their life to bringing you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From super soft t-shirts celebrating the 20th anniversary of the cinematic masterpiece Josie and the Pussycats, to comfy sweatshirts made for the brave members of the Movies by Yourself Club. They even have pins of some of your favorite directors like Sofia Coppola and Jordan Peele. Super Yaki joyously brings tangible love letters to movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly, 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. As a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with code SUPERSKYTALKERS. All caps, no spaces, at checkout. If the spirit moves you, you can find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. In Kevin Scott's latest addition to the High Republic, The Rising Storm, the Nile once again posed a threat to everything the Republic stands for. The Jedi, unsure of their next steps, find themselves inching closer and closer to the dark side. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about the latest addition to the High Republic, The Rising Storm by Kevin Scott. Finally. Finally. I'm so excited to talk about this. I've been, I've, I've, I had finished this book a long time ago like maybe like a month and a half ago. And I was waiting for you to read it so we can finally talk about it. And I got to let the listeners know, every time Caitlin reads a Star Wars book, she never sends me updates when she reads it. I'm always like, oh, where are you in it? And she's like, I'm almost done. And I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) You never send me like a Snapchat of like the, the, the paragraph. Like this is what I do. And she doesn't inform me at all about like her reading status or like if she likes it or anything. So whenever we sit down to record and she like brings a bunch of stuff to this conversation, I'm always really surprised because I'm like, (laughs) number one, like I didn't think you were enjoying it that much. Number two, like we didn't even really talk about it beforehand. And then here she comes with like all this stuff. and I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Okay. So basically what I'm saying is that every time I record with Caitlin about a Star Wars book, it's like a surprise. Like I never know what I'm going to get. <laughs> well, I feel like that uh, is just fitting given our last Patreon episode where that was a complete surprise to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is. If, if you guys – in our last Patreon episode that just went out – Charlotte planned the whole episode without telling me, like I went in completely cold, like blind, didn't even know the topic, how long we were going to be there, what with nothing, literally knew nothing anyway. But um, I'm, well, I'm I'm such a slow reader and sometimes I go and like I can read like 100 pages a day and then I won't look at the book for like a week, like any book, and then I'll do like 10 pages and then like five pages and then 150 pages and it's just – it's kind of sporadic how I read it. But, you know, I think it's, you know, it just it's it brings a level of intrigue when you open the Google Doc notes. <laughs> it really does. Like, genuinely, it does. <laughs> so I'm just really I'm really excited to talk about this because, again, I've been sitting on this for a while. Caitlin recently finished it and we just haven't had a chance to kind of flesh it out and talk about the High Republic because 
I love this era. I'm really enjoying the books. I love these authors and what they're contributing to Star Wars. And this book was a doozy of a book to get through. It was so long. And I say that with the best feelings. Like, I really enjoyed it. Um, We're going to talk about our first impressions and what we think about it later. But that's a spoiler alert. I liked it. So I'm eager to hear (laughs) what (laughs) Caitlin here thinks about it. But before we dive in, I wanted to mention something that had come up, and we just hadn't gotten a chance to talk about this on the show. But on Sky Talkers, we talk a lot about J.W. Rinsler's behind-the-scenes making of Star Wars books. Particularly, we just did an episode on the making of Revenge of the Sith, where we use the Rinsler books as basically a primary source. It's like a Bible, like honestly. Mm-hmm. It, we use these books so much. And J.W. Rinsler has provided so much to the Star Wars community. And I honestly don't really know where we'd be as Star Wars fans without the incredible writing that he has done on the behind the scenes work throughout the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. And I mention this because J.W. Rinsler is really ill with pancreatic cancer. And pancreatic cancer has affected my family. And I just wanted to mention that uh, the Rinsler family actually has a GoFundMe up right now to cover Jonathan's medical expenses. And they just recently yesterday met their goal, but anything on, on the top is being donated to uh, Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. So I'm going to include that link in our notes, and I just wanted to mention it. And also... Rinsler actually has another book coming out soon about uh, more behind the scenes stuff. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And we talked about that a couple months ago with uh, Brandon from Talking Bay 94. And we were all really excited about it then. Um, and that's just another way to support the Rinsler family. And again, I'll put the, the link in our show notes if you're interested in donating. Yeah, definitely check it out. Um, like Charlotte pretty much said, everything that I could hope to say on it. And uh, he's been sick for about a year now. And I think it's kind of taken a turn in the past couple weeks and stuff. So uh, he is a staple to the Star Wars legacy and family and fandom and community. And I think, you know, if you visit the GoFundMe, you'll see a lot of familiar names from the Star Wars family in there and supporting him. So definitely check it out if you're able to and donate or share if you can too. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about the High Republic. I'm so excited. So in part one, we're going to be talking about our first impressions. In part two, we'll be discussing deeper themes. And in part three, we're going to give each other quotes to react to. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Okay, welcome to part one, where we're talking all about first impressions of The Rising Storm by Kevin Scott. And I have to say, if you've been around Sky Talkers for a while, you know that I have a deep, deep love for Kevin Scott's audio drama, Dooku Jedi Lost. It awakened a love for Dooku in me that I had not felt in all of my years as a Star Wars fan. (laughs) And so to have this book also by Kevin Scott, I was really excited because I'm already a big fan of his work. Of course, all of the authors that have been involved in the High Republic before, uh, we've read a lot of their works before and are already fans too. But Kevin Scott, I was particularly excited about just because of how much I love his audio drama. (laughs) 
And I was really looking forward to this book and I really enjoyed it. So what were kind of your first impressions, Charlotte? I really liked it. Like I said in the beginning, it's really long. So when I first started reading it, I read it on my Kindle and I was like, wow, this is so many pages. This is extremely long. And (laughs) that's not a bad thing. It's just took me a long time. And the, the thing is, is that just like with Light of the Jedi, I in in the rising storm you're overwhelmed with a lot of characters and now the names are more familiar but it's still i still had to bring myself up to speed about who these people were what their roles were i was doing a lot of wikipediaing and looking up the concept art i actually do that a lot when i'm reading the high republic stuff because it does help to have the visuals of who these characters are and also, it was a little confusing about species that I just actually had no idea what they were called. So it was um, it was hard for me to picture them. So I was doing a lot of Googling. And overall, though, I really enjoyed this because I think that this book was a darker middle chapter of this phase of the High Republic because we just really dove deeper into the emotions of some characters that I was really intrigued by and new ones that I didn't even know I was obsessed with, like Elzar. And I think that this book did a lot of interesting things with the Force, and I'm really excited to talk about it because I I really enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed this more than Light of the Jedi. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think that this book is definitely aided by coming after Light of the Jedi. You know, like yeah. I, I feel like we might feel like if The Rising Storm was first and Light of the Jedi second, I feel like we might be like, oh, Light of the Jedi is our favorite right. just because there's actual familiarity because the, this series so far, specifically Rising Storm and Light of the Jedi, it really is overwhelming with the number of characters. And um, that's not like a critique. It's just it's hard to keep up with all of them, (laughs) honestly. And especially when sometimes we they're introduced by both their first name and last name. And then, you know, the narration uses their last name, but then a character will refer to them by their first name or like just Padawan. And like it's it's a lot to keep track of. And I know that that is a challenge for me. And yeah, it's a lot of do I have we met this character? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have. We have met them already. Or no, this is a new character. Okay. Where do they fit into all of this? But overall, I really enjoyed the the Rising Storm. I thought um, it was – I thought that the way that it – like like the whole plot of it, like it was kind of like a direct follow-up to The Light of the Jedi in the sense that like we had the Great Disaster and then we had the Republic Fair. And I think they kind of function very similarly. But in the way that you said that like the Rising Storm digs down deeper into some of these characters, I think that the Republic Fair is kind of like a – I don't want to say smaller scale because the disaster is a disaster, but it does feel almost like a smaller scale of the great disaster and um, like really kind of honing in on some of these themes as far as like the Jedi and the dark side and the light side and like the politics and morals, like really drilling down further into that um, with all of these people at their public fair together. And when we got like a taste of that in the great disaster. And now it feels like we've brought them all to this one space where they're kind of having these conversations again, but in almost like a higher stakes arena because, you know, like the chancellor is there and we're worried that she might be dead, you know? So I think that, I think it's a really good follow-up to the light of the Jedi. And um, yeah, I will say I probably enjoyed the rising storm more, but I think that's kind of the nature of 
the series right now, especially with these two books. But I think they're a really good, almost like a duology. Yeah, I definitely think that this is a sequel to Light of the Jedi. And it's interesting how this all functions because there's so many different um, pieces of media that are around the High Republic. So I can see how it can be hard for some people to start. And I think that the the old adage of like, just go in release order actually fully makes sense. But yeah. The Rising Storm does feel like it was a direct sequel to Light of the Jedi. I have to say, I found The Rising Storm and Kevin Scott's writing easier for me to follow, especially in battles. Like I could really visualize it way more than I could in, in space, which I think is just in general harder to describe. When you say smaller scale about the, the Republic Fair, it is a smaller scale because it's on one planet. With The Great Disaster, it was spreading across a bunch of different rooms and different ships and things like that like it was all over the place you know yeah but with on Valo it was all here on this one planet where I could really understand the levels and the different exhibits and where we were it was way more easily easier for me to conceptualize and visualize and I really appreciated that and it made it a page turner for me for sure yeah I think that you know a lot of people had different reactions to the beginning what is it like 150 pages of light of the Jedi that is just leading up to the great disaster and i i was you and i kind of had different views of it too but also i guess kind of the same too because it was like it was working really well uh for me in the beginning and it's like it i thought that the beginning led the jedi was really kind of interesting and in seeing all these different perspectives as we're getting closer and closer to the point of impact but then you know, you're 75 pages in and you're still 22 minutes out from <laughs> impact. Yeah. And I was like, okay, all right, when are we getting there? Like, I, I'm enjoying these characters, but also like, oh my God, the tension. Uh, but especially within the last like two minutes leading up to the great disaster, the point of impact, it was really, like, that was, I felt the tension. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Like having everything on the one planet with this thing, uh, this uh, big event going on, it really does kind of make it easier to, in a sense, keep track of everyone. And it's like one less thing I'm having to remember as we switch character perspectives of, okay, where is this person and who are they with? At least mm-hmm. I'm at the level of, okay, they're they're at the Republic Fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, yeah, it's kind of one less thing to, to have to remember. Because Light of the Jedi and The Rising Storm, we switch back and forth between characters a lot. And I think that's good. I think that lends to the action and page turnerness of these books. But it can, you know, it, it, it's just another thing to keep up with. Yeah, it's interesting because I have to say, I think this book goes hard. Like... <laughs> The High Republic pulls no punches. People are dying left and right. There's, <laughs> you know, insane. I don't know. I feel like this book, I was shocked on so in so many chapters about how far things went um, with certain characters and the ending and Marchion Rowe, just always Marchion, Marchion, whatever. Um, however you pronounce it, is it's fake in space, so it's fine. Always surprises me now with how dark he is getting. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I... I just feel like this book pulled no punches. And for that, it was a really entertaining read because sometimes, and we've talked about this before, and it's less so now, but one of the great things about the High Republic in this High Republic era is that the creators really have the utmost freedom to do whatever the heck they want with these characters. They're all in conversation with each other, all meaning the the authors. So these characters can live or die on the page because we don't 
know where they end up because this takes place so far removed from the Skywalker saga, except for characters like Yoda and things like that. But the original characters in this story, we have no idea, right? (laughs) And for that reason, I just have no idea where it's going, you know, and I'm so intrigued. And because of that, I feel like in this book, Compared to Light of the Jedi, I definitely attached myself to more characters in this book than I did in that one. Uh, And I was more interested in their stories than I felt in Light of the Jedi. One of the things that kind of continues to surprise me about the High Republic as a whole so far is really our lack of Avar Chris. (laughs) And it's surprising. It's so surprising. (laughs) Like something has got, like something big has got to be coming with her. But I, and you know, this is me judging a book by its cover, but when you put her on the cover of the very first book, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I am ready <laughs> for the Avar know, train to hop on. And I think it's so interesting because she she hangs so heavy over a lot of our characters, especially like Stellan and Elzar in this book. But everyone is kind of always talking about her. Like she's always on the periphery of these stories. And I just, I'm very like the question mark is there for me of why has she not entered into these stories as um like a prominent character because she was in she was in light of the jedi but she was yeah she was was. didn't she wasn't super interesting in light of the jedi in my opinion no no, she wasn't (laughs) and we didn't really get to peel back a lot of layers with her which i don't expect to do right in the beginning of the story but and she is featured prominently in the current high republic comic Mm -hmm. but even still she was sold as like the main character. At least that's was my impression yeah. of the High Republic. And it's almost like we're the way she was sold to us is the way that the the characters all believe her to be as well, which is really interesting. Like all, the marketing of the books and the story itself are kind of working together in this way, where she is just you know the top dog, the 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 best of the best, the the marshal of, you know, you know, she's the best. And we see that in some actions, but we also don't really get to get in her head in the same way we do with Stellan and Elzar and other characters. It's really surprising. Yeah, we had, I think in Light of the Jedi, we had kind of one chapter, scene, sequence, whatever you want to call it, with her where, where she's kind of feeling how everyone else feels the force, if yeah. I'm remembering correctly. Yep. And I thought that was a really cool uh sequence but yeah it's like she she is this perfectionist she she's almost like an obi-wan to the nth degree in some mm-hmm. ways uh when it feels like keeping like the jedi code and stuff like that especially when we get these flashbacks with her and elzar in the beginning <laughs> of the rising storm but mm-hmm. yeah i just it there's i can't decide if i think there's this sense of foreboding that's coming with her because I know in one of our earlier conversations about one of the the other higher public books, you and I, of course, were like, "All right, who's gonna fall to the dark side? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> someone's gotta fall." And we we were thinking it would be like really interesting if it was Avar um, who fell because she is like this kind of pinnacle of light. But I don't know if that will happen now. I just I like I said, it's a really big question mark. And yeah, she was. I think a lot of us perceived her as being a main prominent character and she really hasn't been. And so it's just, it continues to be a big question mark of when is she actually going to um, enter a story in a big way in the sense that we are, um, you know, 
like how how does she feel about Elzar? Does she really like does she want to pursue something with him or Stellan but feels like she can't? Or does she is she like very much against that and is like, no, it was only like a lust situation, you know? Like what what is in her head and what does she think about this role that she's been given in the Jedi and everything with the Drengir and the Nile? Um, I just I feel like she, like I said, she kind of hangs over a lot of our characters, but there's not a lot of physical contact or uh, character development with her quite yet. So I that could be setting us up for a lot of pain in the future. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting also to consider these adult books as like, if you were only to read like, the Jedi in this one, you'd be like, oh, Ava really is the best, but when are we going to get inside of her head? And sometimes I'm like, well, maybe Light of the Jedi was this big intro to a bunch of different characters. And then the Rising Storm really introduced us to these two other main players in a really big way. Like, we really got into their head, like Alzar and Stellan, right? And Bell, too. I'm not forgetting about that. But in this trio of Stellan, Elzar, and Avar, we've really only gotten to the he- into the head in a big way of the two men and not Avar. And so I'm wondering if it's setting us up for a book where Avar is really the main character and I still think it's on the table that she could turn to the dark side or leave the Jedi especially because it's interesting in the comics it's played up and it's still ongoing so it's not fully done but in order to fight the Drengir she has aligned the Jedi to work with the Huts, which is really interesting (laughs) and it's an interesting moral move and it's very criticized among the galaxy so i do think that there's some corners aren't aren't being cut but she's making some interesting choices and the risks and i trust her because we're we're supposed to know that she's the best i really do trust her i just wonder how this is all going to affect her later as things escalate because this book is called the rising storm right this isn't just the storm (laughs) we're almost there in terms of this like crescendo that we're leading to of another big takeover from the nile i suppose and maybe that's all to do with the leveler being unleashed at the end of this book and like what does that mean for the fate of the galaxy it's just crazy stuff right i i just feel like there's so much more to come and i bet that we're going to explore her head in a big way in a different book and it will surprise us because I think it's going to be this glimpse into her that we just haven't seen yet. Yeah, I really hope so. You're talking about her decision to kind of align the Jedi with the Huts. It feels very pragmatic from her perspective of like, yeah, this is this is how we're – and I, I'm not caught up on the comics, but it's like this is how we're going to get done what we need to get done. Uh but it is interesting how she's really criticized for that. And that does come up in The Rising Storm, too, at the end when, um, you know, after the main attack on the Republic Fair is over and it's like, well, you know, a lot of our Jedi were unable to come because Avar had them all with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people were criticizing for her for that. And there's that debate among the Je- – I think it's the Jedi Council. And they're like, well, you know, that's within her jurisdiction to call the Jedi to her. And they're like, yeah, but we were SOL in mm-hmm. a really big way. So – and, you know, to top it all off, this is with the Huts too. So, you know, what what is Avar doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it, you're right. It is a really interesting decision. And um, the, it like – I don't know. It's just it's so weird kind of only knowing how people talk about her because 
you know, we do, like you were talking about, like we do see her as kind of this perfectionist or like the head Jedi, but kind of the experiences of our characters, like specifically Elzar here, like to me, it doesn't exactly paint Avar. Like, I don't know if I like Avar from Elzar's perspective. Like if I'm team <laughs> Elzar here, right? Then mm-hmm. the fact that like they've been this like group of three have been like, you know, like another trio, right? They've been friends. They've grown up together basically. And Elzar and Avar have had this thing that um, maybe went too far, maybe could go further. Elzar maybe thinks he wants it to go further, but he like just wants to talk to her. And then he like she doesn't even tell him that he's not coming, that she's not coming to Vallow. And I don't know, you can just kind of feel that disappointment in him and the fact that like she didn't even send like a communique about it or mm-hmm. like a sorry something came up. Um, like to me, that I'm like, oh, why would you do that to your friend? Like your best friend, you know? And like, Stellan also didn't tell him either. It's yeah. this, this weird relationship between this triangle that's so interesting to me. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like from the, I guess from like a galactic perspective, it's like, yeah, Avar, I trust Avar, but, you know, we're character people here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, Elzar, I'm so sad for him. And um, yeah, that's why I would like to officially throw down the gauntlet for Elzar and Ty. And that's that. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> um, I really like that duo too. Uh, yeah. Sort of as just a broad statement, I just want to say that I find this era to be really rich with different moral quandaries that I really appreciate in Star Wars, from politics to the Force to the Jedi. I think it's doing a really good job of making me question all the different ways that the the figureheads that we see in the High Republic, how are they different than what we know so well from the prequels in the original trilogy? But also, how yes, how are they different? But how are they better? And how are they worse? And I really like that what that's doing to my brain. And I just really appreciate all the risks that the authors are taking for that because things that I find myself agreeing with in the book or like decisions by characters surprise me in the way that I'm agreeing with them or disagreeing with them, if that makes sense. I just, I think it's the the books themselves do a really good job of exploring all these different avenues of what the heck is going on in the galaxy at this point. Yeah, I think that much like the prequels and this idea that you know, when you came into the prequels, I think a lot of, right, we've talked about this a lot about people having this idea of who the Jedi were going to be. But of course, they can't be that pinnacle because the prequel trilogy is when they fall apart, when they are undone, basically, and manipulated too by Palpatine. Like all of that is together. So then you come back to the High Republic, and you know it's the High Republic, and it's supposed to be there are thousands of Jedi, and everything is great, and the um, the Republic is thriving with Chancellor So and all of this stuff. But like this Jedi Order also has to lead to the Jedi Order we see in the prequel trilogy. So like some of those dominoes have to fall. And so it's it's like, and this is reality too, right? Like we're never going to have a perfect Jedi Order of legend because that doesn't actually exist and, and never did. Mm-hmm. It's the Camelot of it all that we talked about in our Light of the Jedi episode. Yeah, exactly. And they, they've done a really good job of it because it's like you – you want so badly for the Jedi to just show up and 
save the day. And they do sometimes, but then seeded throughout all of this, there are very real problems. And I think that pairing like Chancellor So and Stellan together in a lot of this book, and there's um, a couple of quotes we'll talk about later on that really kind of drive home this idea of the Jedi as symbols. And um, is that good? Is that bad for them to be used as symbols? And who's using them as symbols? Is it the Jedi themselves, the Republic? What does that mean for everyone mm-hmm. involved? And yeah, I think they that the High Republic as a whole has done, and especially Light of the Jedi and the Rising Storm, have done a really good job of kind of um, integrating these different ideals and uh, threads. So what were your favorite parts? Genuinely, I loved everything with Belle. Um, yeah. I love Belle so Me much. Too. I Me just... Too. If Belle does not come out of this happy <sighs> with Ember, I, I, I will find some High Republic authors with some very strong words. <laughs> I will write a strongly worded letter. Yeah, if honor both of them. them don't come out happy, I just <laughs> it'll just make me really sad. But and alive, like yeah, happy and alive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really loved everything with Belle. Um, also, you know, the historian in me, Oberlin. O- Orba Lynn, the archivist, obsessed with him. A viscous <laughs> archivist. I just, I don't know what to do with that. I love it so much. <laughs> he saves the day with artifacts. He's ready to lecture at, at the drop of a hat. <laughs> it's just... Was it? Okay, you just refreshed my memory, but remember when Elzar was like so pumped that Avar was going to come to Mallow? <laughs> yeah. And then instead it was Orba Lynn. Yeah. Right? That's what yeah. happened. It was like, yeah. Uh. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny, but he was so great. His And listen, y'all up front, I just got to be real. As we've discussed, the character names are hard for me. And there's, I do not remember character names, especially ones that I've not written down in our notes. And the character that Orvalin was with <laughs> throughout their whole little sequence starts with an E, I think. <laughs> but that whole... Um, sequence with them you know going to the (laughs) arborland's like i know we can use some ancient technology to (laughs) do this and this and it was just it was so great and then when his suit got uh damaged and he just like oozes out (laughs) 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 i just love it so much part of me wonders if uh the design of orbalin was somehow inspired by daniel jose older because this feels like a daniel jose older character um <laughs> but i i you know the author roundtable they're all there much how like the drangir were um uh claudia gray's idea and like bucks of blood is <laughs> daniel's or Berlin kind of feels like in the daniel sphere but i could be wrong but like, we you should know, ask that's, him someday. it's just kind of my head canon <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah, and then Ty too. I lo- I loved her beginning sequence actually a lot, where we were introduced to Ty and her decision um, about taking that deal to help some people that she ran across on that planet. I don't know. I really liked her character, and I'm very intrigued by her. So I had a good time with Ty's character. Um, what was your favorite part? I-, I basically said a lot of chapters and sequences, but what was your favorite part? I like all the m- mysterious parts. So I like the beginning where Elzar is on Ashla, which is really cool that we have a moon named Ashla, which mm-hmm. is the original name for the light side of the forest. We've talked about that in our Dark Side episode. So I thought that was really cool that there's an inclusion of that. And then not only was Ashla 
a moon of this name, but also it's a moon of Tython, which is the planet that Grogu makes a connection with the Jedi on that uh, seeing stone in The Mandalorian. So I thought it was really cool and a nice um, parallel because basically what Elzar does is put himself in the water to focus on the Force itself. And it just reminded me of that almost with Grogu. And I liked that sort of parallel there, even though what Elzar was experiencing was a really dark vision. And I enjoyed that a lot. It really set the tone for the rest of the book for me because that was right in the beginning where I was like, oh, I can't wait to see more about Elzar's vision. How is he haunted by this? I'm so excited. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I also really loved Markion's Rose um, journey into the cave with that uh, bird character. I don't know. I just really... The, the like force sensitive guy yeah i thought that was so cool and it was so indiana jones to me and just the reminder that markion has a lightsaber just so i don't know he's so mysterious i love this character so much and his his history his past is so intriguing to me and i just really liked that because i never knew it was going to happen the deeper and deeper we got i definitely felt this creeping feeling my entire the entire time i was in those chapters it was almost spooky for me where i was like some people are not going to make it out alive of this journey and that was true and i don't know i just those were my favorite parts i also genuinely liked the space epcot of it all when it came to the republic fair like again with the easy to visualize if you visualize it as world showcase it just makes sense right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i liked that there was this literal parallel to it's a small world with the uh, is it united as one or something like that <laughs> in the song i was like this is great kevin scott yes thank you for making space epcot we needed this <laughs> <laughs> so as a disney parks fan and a walt disney fan i thought that was great and also just to imagine the world's fair becoming this like terrible disaster i was like oh my god this Aww. is so much so <laughs> if in, yeah it really is so sad and i i'm i'm laughing just because i'm like oh my god it'd be crazy and the thing is is that i I just named all the dark parts, but that's why I like this book because it was super dark <laughs> and I like stuff like that. And it, I, like I said earlier, it pulled no punches. In both those scenes, I was like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Is Elzar going to drown? Is Markian going to make it out alive? What is happening here? And even where are they going? It felt so Indiana Jones. It just felt good. I really liked it. Yeah, I thought the whole the whole sequence with Markian at the beginning, it that was really chilling. Like in my head, I was visual visualizing it a lot like the um the episode in The Mandalorian season two with the space spiders. Oh, yeah. Like that's how it kind of looked in my head and except like much smaller. But yeah, it did it was very Indiana Jones. And it was very chilling. But and I thought that, you know, of course we don't know what what um species that other character was that died, but his force No, we do. We know the the species, but I can't well, remember I it do. now. I mean we yeah, it's in the book. <laughs> you and I don't know it at this moment. Yes. <laughs> um, but his his whole journey of or his whole character and like his species of them having force sensitivity and how the people from his home planet do or do not use it, I thought was really cool because one thing I think that you and I are always kind of tracking is the force in other iterations throughout the galaxy that is not the Jedi and kind of what it means to other people and people who, you know, want nothing to do with the Jedi or never become Jedi and have force capabilities, but choose to never 
use it for good or maybe even choose not to use it at all. Um, I just thought it was a really interesting uh, kind of a brief look, albeit, at a species like that. Um, but yeah, it was and oh, and like that character had a he was having like visions of his father too, right? When all of that was happening, and then Mark Yanrow has visions of his father at the very end of the book too. So it was kind of this nice parallel between you know the beginning and the end with Mark Yan in this in this entry. Absolutely. One last thing I kind of wanted to bring up really fast. Um, you know, wh- where is Yoda? <laughs> where is he? Because it's been brought up a couple times, and I think it was Elzar in the Earth. It was telling her Elzar in this book that we're like, things, you know, maybe we could figure out what was going on. Maybe Yoda could help wherever he is. <laughs> well, he's in the, in the comics. So I can't really answer that, but he's in the comics. And just like Avar, I feel like Yoda's going to have a moment. We're leading up to a moment with Yoda. And it's going to be a really good moment because Yoda moments are have to be really, really good, right? And <laughs> I'm so intrigued. <laughs> yeah, they do have to be good. And I, I, it's what I'm interested in with Yoda being here or rather his absence because even though he is in the comics, like you say, these like big moments, it's it's been brought up by multiple characters how he basically isn't answering their phone calls, is not helping out. <laughs> no one really knows where he is. Um, and I think that's very interesting to think about how that will – how whatever happens here will inform – the Yoda we see in this in the second trilogy of, you know, the dark side clouds, everything of him like doing a, like a lot of meditation and uh, being very present in the Jedi Council because he's on the council now. Uh, so I, I just think it's very interesting considering how um, he really is the leader of the Jedi Council in the second trilogy. And I don't know, is he considered like the leader right now? I, he's on the council, but I don't. No, I mean I don't he, think he's, he's the leader. He's not that the he head honcho. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just I find it very interesting that he appears to be absent throughout a lot of this, and what that could mean, like basically how the authors are thinking about Yoda here, impacting and kind of creating the Yoda of the prequel trilogy. Yes, I can't wait for that because that will add to everything I know about Yoda and what I think. You know. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to dive into part two and some deeper themes? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so welcome to part two. We're going to be talking about the deeper themes. And I thought it would be good to start with the Nile. Let's talk about Markion Rowe. I just want to lead with this question. Is Markion beyond redemption? Last time we talked about it and you, I was like, he can be redeemed. And you were like, he's scary, Charlotte. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and Did I we were both like, can't but be redeemed. No, no, no. This is what <laughs> I was going to say. Then we both said he can be redeemed. And this is our, our usual conversation about how every Star Wars character can be redeemed, even Palpatine. So that's true. But is that the trajectory that we're on for Markian Rowe? I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like, Every character can be redeemed. Redemption is always an option, especially in fiction. But is that the story that they're telling? 
so in light of the Jedi, right, that is kind of a dip your toes into all of these characters. And with Mark Yonro, that's true too. Like we don't know a ton about him. We know about Mari Santeca and, you know, his relationship with her and um, kind of that his father set up, um, like set up, I think his father was the first I, like set up that whole kind of system and hierarchy his mm-hmm. family did. Um, but we don't know a ton about Mark Yon. And so that, that question of like, okay, well, could he be redeemed? Deemed. Maybe there's something else going on here. Does he have some kind of greater purpose that he believes he's doing the right thing? You know, that kind of villain origin story. But now here in the rising storm, he is just super bad. Um, <laughs> he he seems he does things with no remorse. And even the moments where we're kind of um, from his perspective and we are kind of getting a glance into his inner thoughts, it really is about power and, um, you know, still being in charge, getting people out of his way that block his path. Um, And that's like, he has no, like I said, no remorse for anything that he's doing. He doesn't second guess himself in any of the decisions that he makes about when it comes to the lives of others, which um, I don't know. I think that he, there's a lot of malice in what, well, I don't even want to call it malice. There's not malice in what he does. It's not like a revenge against someone or, or something or like the Jedi or an organization. It just – it feels so like it's that calm kind of evil in a way. And I think it, it's very interesting. Like if there does come a redemption story from Merkian, which again could always happen um, – I feel like they're going to we're going to have to really dig down a lot deeper into who he is and why he's doing what he's doing, because I think we get a little taste of it with the the visions he has of his father. But even then, he's like he's trying to prove himself as stronger than his father was as a better leader of the eye uh, or of the Nile by being the eye and that, you know, you couldn't get it done, but I can because I have what it takes to, you know, it's like. The hard, the things that you would think are hard choices are not even hard choices for him. He just does it. And, yeah. you know, that person is gone. Yeah, it's really interesting because I found myself having an inch of sympathy for everyone who is underneath Markian in yeah. his uh, secretive ways. I was like, yeah, it is kind of absurd, this whole hierarchy. Like, I think we compared it to a pyramid scheme in our Light of the Jedi uh, discussion and it's interesting to see them all kind of realize that especially Lorna who continues to be a great character and one I'm so I cannot wait for the audio drama that Kevin Scott is writing Woo-hoo. about Lorna D I'm just so pumped and I think I so so again I found myself having sympathy for people like Lorna who were like why am I serving this guy who's so secretive won't let me in who could kill me at a moment's notice and Yet I know that Lorna is also a bad person, but I was siding with her with that. But at the same time, like you mentioned, it's hard for me to understand Markian's motivations because we don't 100% know them. No one really does. And at the beginning, I thought he had sympathy for people like Mari, but now I don't think that at all. And journeying to find the leveler, like the leveler is so interesting and just even the introduction of this to Star Wars canon is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the lever, the leveler is, you know, protected by the shrine that Markian and Udidis, it's Udidis, by the way, and Kufa visit. Um, and 
it can basically silence like your connection to the force, which is crazy. The fact that this is introduced is like, oh my God, whoa. And it also makes sense that we didn't necessarily see this in the Skywalker saga because that wasn't the main goal of this war between the light and the dark side or the Jedi and the Sith, inevitably, right? Because that that wasn't the goal of the Sith. That wasn't Palpatine's goal. It wasn't to siphon away any sort of like to stop the force from happening, but instead um, siphon it all to him, right? That was the whole idea uh, in like kind of layman's terms for the Sith in in the Skywalker saga. But here it's it's used as um, almost like a great equalizer to remove this extra power, this magic that the Jedi and other force sensitives have. And it's super interesting and it will bring a lot of destruction, I think, to the High Republic going forward. And I also think it's an interesting thing to explore because here we have Markian Rowe who has a lightsaber, like I mentioned, and he has now this creature that has the ability because he unleashed it to take away the force and also turn people into stone. <laughs> Just crazy. And I feel like he is taking everything from the Jedi. He is removing their connection to the force. Their their like almost pristine connection to like the living, you know, the living, the the living force, the cosmic force, everything that powers them, that makes them um what some consider to be like supreme beings, right? And Instead, he's taking that all away with this thing. But then he's also had that he also has a Jedi weapon, which is really interesting, you know. So he is taking it all away, but then keeping it for himself almost. And I really wonder how this is going to be used in canon going forward. The only thing I can think of that was like kind of similar was what they had Maul in in on Mandalore in the Clone Wars. When they had him in that uh, Guernica coffin looking thing, <laughs> you know, that oh. basically wrapped him up and took, I think it took away the force powers, if I remember correctly, right? It was used by the Mandalorians to, in the Jedi versus Mandalorian war to oh. silence his force powers. Yes. And there was only one left. Yes. And I loved that. That piece of lore is so interesting. And we've, we talked about that on the show. And I I feel like it just feels similar to me. And I don't know how yeah, it it's going to connect. But those two things are um, the two objects that I can think of that. And obviously, the leveler isn't an object. It's a creature, I guess. Um, it's It's the only things that I know that can kind of silence this power of the Jedi and the Sith. Well, oh my god, and it's also like that thing from Thrawn. Oh my god, that creature. Yes. <laughs> okay, so in legends, they're called the Yasalamari, and they were lizard-like tree dwellers known for their ability to repel the Force by creating mm -hmm. a Force-neutral bubble. So interesting. Um, they were brought into canon in. I don't think we've seen a living one, but I think there were uh, statues of them statues. in Thrawn's office. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, the, the all of these things have to be connected. Related. Yeah. yeah. The thing this is th this is a bad connection. Your connection was better because I did not think of the Mandalar uh, coffin. The only thing I could think of that was similar in the sense of like with the term the leveler was uh, the thing that the weapon that's to be made that could cut through any armor, like with just like the laser or whatever it was, and it was 
like in rebels they consider it you know kind of uh like unfair war Mm -hmm. like a unfair weapon uh because it was just that destructive and could you know decimate entire armies in the blink of an eye Mm -hmm. this is one of those things that you know is just going to have a major impact going forward. Like, I felt this way even about the Drengear, too, in Into the Dark. I also, I also think I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the things that I think the High Republic is doing well in this phase, I don't know if phase is the right terminology, but this, like, grouping of books is having this conflict of the Nile as, like, the larger conflict, but also in the background, the Drengear, who sort of are the opposite of what you immediately think of when you think of like nature and lush fertile life they're instead destructive plants right and so i think that you have these two things that are two destructive forces and i really like how this book has one of them sort of in the background as this looming threat but we know it's a pretty immediate present threat for um a lot of people across the galaxy and that will be discovered later. So it's kind of cool because I think that the Republic is facing this threat that they don't even want to look right into the face of the Nile. And you also know in the back of your head, if you've read into the dark or the comics or anything like that, that the Jedi are facing an even graver, almost whack-a-mole-esque threat with (laughs) the Drengear that never go away. And how do you beat that? And Part of me, I just to bring it back to the leveler, part of me thinks that maybe this is another way that you beat back the Drengear or if, if something, mm. perhaps you could do that with this. If this turns people to stone, I wonder if it could also turn the Drengear to stone as well. Ooh. And yeah, I don't know. I keep thinking about, <laughs> oh my God, I think I bring this up all the time. But when Claudia Gray was on our show and she was like, I really wanted something to happen with the Drengear, but I had to move that later for the story. I am thinking about what that is so much (laughs) and I feel like I don't know what I obviously don't know what that is but I um I just know that the Drengear are going to come back in and meet the Nile again as they did in Into the Dark and what does that mean like how because those are they're both threats like I in Into the Dark I thought that um at one point in the book I thought that the Nile were going to harness the power of um, the Drengear, if that was even possible, and use them as their like weapon of choice, almost like the Jedi have the Force and the Nile have the Drengear, but that didn't happen. And so now I think that these two um, these two threats to the galaxy are also with like the Drengear is a threat to the Nile too, and I wonder if that is how it, they will be defeated because it feels like there's no way around it except for like putting yourself in the utmost harm's way to kill like the center of the plant. You know, so I don't know. I just like the implications of introducing something like the leveler to canon. It's exciting. It's scary. And like I said earlier, this book throws no punches. I was shocked. I was appalled. And like, oh, my God, R.I.P. Load and Graystorm. I can't. I had to reread that like three times. I was like, wait, 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 you really... That's that's some serious whiplash I here. I know. It's like they're reunited. No, they're not. What? You know what? Oh, my God. Caitlin, Star Wars does this to us all the time. Because it, Star Wars is tragedy. Tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, just for the record, I am wearing my amazing Dren Gear shirt from no way. Topic. Yeah, I planned this. <laughs> I literally planned it. <laughs> I Yeah, I think... 
one of the things I love about the High Republic is that as of right now, our biggest threats to the Jedi are not, you know, the Sith, the dark side. Um, it is, uh, you know, the Nile and sentient evil plants with a mission for destruction. <laughs> and I just, I love that because it works so well. Like you hear that. And I think you could even say that like the Nile and the fact that they're the clouds and the storms and the strikes and you have the drunk gear, it sounds just like a little too on the nose and like a little kooky. But I think that is part of its charm, but also like part of why it works so well. Because honestly, okay, what, what is scarier? Is it you know, Markeon at the beginning of this book, you know, going deeper and deeper into the shrine and, you know, killing um, Udi Dis, Dis? Uh, or is it uh, the Drengir when they were eating What's-His-Face in Into the Dark? <laughs> they're both really scary. And that's what's <laughs> like, good about it is that they're yeah. both really good, extremely different threats. Yeah. And you, I mean, that's part of the thing too, right? Is that like Avar is like she's in charge of the Gen Gear task force, I guess. And um while they are, you know, fighting this front, then the Nile are attacking here. And the Jedi's hubris was thinking they had defeated the Nile or that they were safe. And they talk about this throughout the book and specifically like the the in the political sphere, they talk about how it was basically it was wrong of them to think that, you know, they were safe when they weren't like they didn't take the threat, the possibility of the threat of the Nile seriously enough. And it cost them dearly. Yeah. Before we move on and stop talking about the leveler and Markian Rowe, can I read this quote that I think is really interesting because it, it aids to the fact that we have no idea what Markian's number one, his species and what his past is like. And this was a quote between um, Kufa and Markian. Um, when they're trekking into like deep down to find the leveler. But it will be worth it to look upon the leveler, to feel its nullifying peace, as our ancestors did long ago, as we were taught, all of us. I'm like, nullifying peace? <laughs> I I think that it that's the closest thing I think we're going to get to a goal. If we can go back to the terminology of why the Nile are called the Nile, and that is because of nihilism. That is because nothing matters, right? That's the the definition, or really like the layman's term of nihilism. This idea that uh, there is no God, there is no consequence, there is nothing. There is just you, yourself, and your nothing matters, right? <laughs> and I think that that idea of using and harnessing the power of the leveler it is to bring in his words nullifying peace because he thinks that the removal of people like the jedi in this whole like bureaucratic system i suppose this is me sort of guessing or postulating but that would be the best end goal because then he would rule and there would just be splendor but to me, I was really struck by the term nullifying peace. Yeah, it's such an interesting way to describe it. And as you're talking, it almost makes me wonder if Markion is ironically against like hierarchy in the yeah. world of like the Jedi having, you know, these powers and to be looked upon as like basically gods, I'm sure, to some people in the galaxy. There's this quote from Markion Rowe in um where he's talking about the Jedi and it's on page 342 
and it's in one of his uh, like little pep talks. And he says we to to the rest of the Nile. He says we congratulate you all on your victory. Today marks the beginning of a new reality. Never again will the Republic underestimate us. Never again will they consider themselves beyond our touch. Their power is a lie. The Jedi are a lie. He thudded his chest with a gloved fist. This is our time. Yes, we lost men in the attack and we honor their sacrifice, but we have gained so much. Tonight we drink. Tonight we celebrate. Tonight we are Nile. And I think that like that part, I think there's a lot going on in this scene of like Mark Yan's motivations, what happens with Pan and Lorna and everything. But this like little piece in the middle of their powers a lie, the Jedi are a lie, I think is maybe the most, could be the most telling in what Mark Yan's uh, like motivations are or maybe what he believes the galaxy should look like especially how it relates to that quote you read about the leveler and it you know relating back to his ancestors and where he's from and everything and if that is true then and this is a lot of speculation on our part but it it is wonderfully ironic that uh, Markion is now in this very established hierarchy at the you know the top of the pyramid yeah, I love that you mentioned that, this irony that has to do with the hating hierarchy, but he himself being the head of a hierarchy. It's just, it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if that's what's going on here. I think it is. I think it is. That's yeah. my perspective as well. Okay, let's talk about the politics of the High Republic, specifically Chancellor Lena So. I find her to be a very curious character, and I never know what I fully think about her, to be honest. I thought in the beginning of the book, because I think we all knew that there was going to be some destruction on Valo, when that Senator Tia Toon comes up to her and is making comments about the de- defense force program and not fully relying on the Jedi and her scoffing at that and basically silencing her. And he says, the spirit of unity. Yes, we've seen the posters, Chancellor, but all the propaganda in the galaxy wouldn't distract you from the fact that the fair is a dangerous extravagance that could be canceled the moment the legacy run was destroyed, that should have been canceled the moment the legacy run was destroyed. All that time, all that money fritted away upon on frippery and ostentation. The The Republic Fair is a dangerous vanity project that puts the lives of our citizens in jeopardy. The Senate knows it, and so do you, Madam Chancellor. I think this is really interesting because I found this character to be honestly quite annoying. But at the same time, I couldn't help it be like, oh, um... you're right. (laughs) I don't think that the Republic should be relying on the Jedi to protect every citizen in the galaxy. I feel like that is rough and that we know it doesn't, the the mixture of war and the Jedi is not great. That wasn't their purpose. Their purpose was to bring, um, you know, be keepers of the peace, but not be soldiers. And in a way, what the Republic asks is for them to be soldiers. And I think that the the concept of um, what the book is trying to do to might try to make you see that like maybe the naivete around Lena So isn't the best, but at the same time, like the, it may, by the end of it, we're like, oh, they can work together, and like that's really great. This this whole that that really is the spirit of unity, you know. And I just never know what to think about Lena. I I really. I thought that she could potentially have something up her sleeve, but I don't actually think that because I 
was really charmed by her relationship with her son and her son's own feelings towards um, his mother. And because of that, I was like, oh, you know what? I've been I'm unfairly judging, even though I do think that she was pretty naive. But I, I just maybe I'm just a little distrustful of people that have Chancellor in front of their name. <laughs> <laughs> she is such an interesting character and I think that I still think now within this duology it's like I still think she's a quote-unquote good person and that her intentions are in the best place um, but you know when you get into the politics of it it just it becomes so complicated about like she is so set that the Republic Fair is important. It has something to say. It is a symbol. And all of that is true. And weighing the ramifications, like the perspective of the galaxy of calling off the Republic Fair, like what kind of message does that send in light of their um, in light of everything that's going on? You know, actually in the real world comparison right now would be Japan and the Olympics going on right now. And everything happening over there it's incredibly complicated for a mm -hmm. lot of different reasons mm -hmm. yeah and i'm really glad that you mentioned that because nothing is created in a vacuum right like we know that this book was written last year when the olympics were canceled when everything was being canceled and in during that time like i think canceling was the right move and i still believe that I don't know. I feel like in a lot of ways, sometimes I read this book and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so real. Yeah. Got to cancel it. <laughs> it's just so yeah. dangerous. Yeah. It's like you it's like you think it's as easy as just canceling something. But I mean, even like to compare it to something like the Olympics, like, yeah, that might be the right call. All things considered with with how COVID is progressing in Japan. Um, but you can't deny the the domino effect of how. Uh, difficult that actually is to stop the wheels from turning on something mm -hmm. as grandiose as the Olympics. Um, and, you know, that is comparative to or comparable to what is happening at the Republic Fair. And I think that, you know, very different situations, but like the Republic Fair, like Chancellor So, she is a proponent for carrying on with the Republic Fair as a symbol for. Um, the Republic overcoming everything that happened with the great disaster as like a, it's done, we did it, we all came together, we are all the Republic. And, you know, I, that, I feel like that is very much the heart of the Olympics in normal times of the world trying to come together for this event. And especially after, quote unquote, after COVID, um, after 2020, I guess would be the better way to phrase that. Um, it's like, that's what we all want the Olympics to be. But is that necessarily reality? No, and certainly not in Japan right now either. And um, then certainly not in on Valo with the higher public um, to devastating uh, results too. And yeah. not to make that like two world or doomsday drawing like the comparison between these two events. And I certainly hope uh, nothing like that happens if the Olympics do continue on in Japan. But it was like, oh, as I was talking about it, it was like, wow, okay, this, this, Again, very real, sometimes almost too real. I know. I know. I feel that too. I really do. But the concept of like, um, what is the role of the Jedi in the High Republic at this point is something that I think is really interesting and is being fully explored in the High Republic. And there's that whole, there's also this like colonial, colonialism aspect of 
the Jedi and how they're like seeking new frontiers and things that there's an element of this concept is wrong and not the purpose of what the Jedi should be that is very muddied and complicated in the stories and um, I would I wish that that was being explored a little bit more and perhaps it will be I mean this is really just the beginning of like a four-year expansion of the High Republic so we'll see how where it goes but just to bring it back to like I think that this book definitely did explore the concept of what is the Jedi's purpose and you have this quote here and I don't know if you want to read it now Caitlin? Um, Sure. Yeah. This is, so this is from page 359 and this is Stalin and Chancellor So are talking after, um, when Chancellor So is basically in the hospital and uh, they're talking about the, like you're saying, the role of the Jedi. And Stalin says, the Jedi are not warriors, nor should we ever be. But you are symbols, Chancellor So insisted, especially now, especially you. And this is after uh, Stellan basically became the poster child uh, for what happened at the Republic Fair uh, with an image, right? Like a hollow speaks a thousand words of uh, the dying Chancellor in his arms and him like sobbing basically in the middle of all this destruction. And the way that it's described in the book, I can, like I can see this image very clearly in my head of like on you know space newspapers and on the news and stuff like that (laughs) and it's very evocative even on the page um and i just i i find this like you've been talking about this whole conversation so interesting because we hear time and time again now and in the prequel trilogy that the jedi are not warriors they are not soldiers but that is kind of all we ever see them being (laughs) and it's this a continual conflict of interest, conflict of identity, perhaps, for the Jedi. And I have yet to see like an iteration of the Jedi where they are not uh, fighting and not um, not even not just fighting, but not intrinsically tied to a political entity. In this case, the Republic and and also the Republic, (laughs) Um, both the Republic. But they they keep saying this, like, we're keepers of the peace. We're not warriors. We shouldn't ever be. But that's exactly what they're doing here in in the Rising Storm, in the High Republic era. And they are aligning themselves with Chancellor So. And, like, what do they mean by not being warriors? Because what are they doing now, right? You know, they have all these Jedi who are stationed on different planets protecting the planet. And it's like, aren't Jedi supposed to be getting in touch with the Force, getting in touch with themselves and uh, building a community and not protecting it from, you know, larger than life threats like the Nile and the Drengir and things like that? Um, I think it gets a a little, uh, are they deviating from the core values? and also, just to pivot a little bit to talk about core values, we are so familiar with the prequel Jedi having zero attachments and love is bad. Attachment is bad. It's forbidden. All of these things are forbidden. And yet we have a, we're centered on a Jedi in the prequels who falls in love. And we are told that this is the worst thing for him because selfishness gets a hold of him due to his attachments. However, in the High Republic, the concept of Jedi having flings is rampant. All of the Jedi <laughs> that we see in, 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 in these stories all have crushes and they've all, you know, I mean, Elzar is like 
you know, sleeping with a lot of people. And like, <laughs> I, I, I love this character. I want this for our character. love this I think for him. Really, yeah, I love this for him. I love, I love that this is an aspect of the High Republic. I think it's great. But I do think it's an interesting examination about like, what the heck went wrong? How did we get from here to where this like exploration of like ideas and love and feelings and things like that, as long as you were still a prim and proper Jedi, and you did your duty, was fair because you were still getting in touch with the force and things like that, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and, and, but later in the prequels where we have the fall of the Jedi and we're all centered on this idea of attachment is so bad. Um, it's not that the attachment thing isn't brought up in the High Republic because it is, but it's just approached from a totally different way and it is so refreshing. And for me, I just really wonder if, if we can tie it back to the sort of slow corruption that is happening of what a Jedi's core values are. I really wonder if like, you know, so we have the piece of like the Jedi used as symbols of like warriors and soldiers and protectors and things like that. But then also, but like to an extreme degree, not just protectors of like (laughs) the symbi, the symbiosis of like the, the planets and the stars and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But instead um, fighting off these grave threats, but then also this concept of um, love and attraction and um, lust and things like that, that it just keeps being thrown around in the High Republic. I just like, when, where does it all go wrong? And when does it go wrong? And I'm so intrigued because it, it th- this exploration is so valuable into even understanding how the Jedi are perceived in the prequels I think the concept of purity culture is is really interesting. Like that's, I feel like that's the what you have to call it in the Jedi, um, and even in this era, it's it's more uh, open, I would say. But I wouldn't say that it's exactly encouraged. And I think we see this with with Elzar specifically because he has this whole conversation with Avar, and um, even uh, in some of our other books too, with uh, in Into the Dark. Um, they are talking, there's like a whole conversation among the Padawans about basically like almost like a spin the bottle party kind of situation. And it's like, oh, we we can only do this now, like when we're young, basically. And that's effectively the conversation Avar has with Elzar at the beginning, where she basically tells him like, we, we can't do this anymore. Like, what are you doing? But then Elzar is very much going around, sleeping with different people on Balo. Um, but it's kind of like he... He doesn't get in trouble for it, but Stellan, I don't know, is kind of judgy about it, I guess would be the right way to describe it. Like other people seem to be judgy of it. But there's also a lot of like attraction and lust that is happening among characters like Ty and Elzar have that kind of banter. And then that uh, reporter definitely has a crush on Stellan and is like, he is really attractive. (laughs) And I don't know, I think it is really just interesting to think about how this is almost what we were talking about at the beginning of the show about like this is still not the perfect Jedi Order, right? That Jedi Order never existed. And while some things may be better here, there are still things that are going to happen that have ramifications down the timeline. And I think this idea of like love and attachment, something's going to happen specifically with that. I hope so anyway, because like a a really tragic romance is right up our alley (laughs) and it would be really interesting to see that happen and kind of the rippling effect it would have within the Jedi to really clamp down on these ideas of love and attachment and what they mean. 
So I think we should talk a little bit about Elzar Mann since we're in this conversation about love and relationships and we're just kind of like walking around Elzar in this conversation. But for me, I was struck by the similarities between Elzar Mann and Anakin Skywalker like so much. His his touching of the dark side to me was so similar. And I think Kevin Scott was purposeful in this. And I just want to read this quote from page 238. Elzar Mann didn't think of the souls he was sending to the Force. He cut through the Nile like a clinical instrument. He'd started by remaining true to his teaching, disarming instead of killing as a good, as a good Jedi should, but the Nile didn't know when to give up. He ripped the masks from their faces, taking their weapons first and then their arms. But still the brutes kept coming, fueled by bloodlust or drugs or probably both. Elzar didn't know, and for one terrible moment he didn't care. The Nile were acting like animals, and like animals, they'd be put down. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that was so similar Chilling. to Anakin talking about um, the Tuscans in Attack of the Clones, and I slaughtered them like animals, you know? And that was such a chilling moment because that's just a paragraph that sits on the page in between two other scenes. And you're like, oh, my God, is this it? Has Alzar gone to the dark side? And like, was this his his journey? And it wasn't. But he really did touch the dark side there. And it was alarming. And uh, several things happened that were similar to and like that happened to Anakin, too. He touched the dark side a lot, but he didn't go full Darth Vader until Revenge of the Sith later. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was like, whoa. This is a lot. And it got me thinking a lot about how we talked in the beginning of this journey in the High Republic about how there's going to be a lost 20 at some point and who among us is going to fall to the dark side. I think we talked about this with Avar, but it felt like we were witnessing a moment with Elzar here where it was like, oh, my God, it could be Elzar. But perhaps that's too obvious. But I do feel like he is our Anakin character. And I feel like Anakin would be really similar if the Jedi had the rules of like relationships or that it was way more casual. Um, I feel like that's how he would have been in <laughs> in the prequels had that been the case. And um, I, do, I don't know. I got really nervous and I'm still nervous. And it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very nervous for Alzar. It's very interesting, though. It's like. I feel like it happened so quickly. It was kind of like he went into the deep end of the water and was Yeah, but that's just, how it is. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Really quick. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt like I, I feel like with Anakin, we see the because we've had his character for so long and in so many formats, we have so many examples of him kind of touching the dark side and coming back or people talking about the dark side in him and then this like full fledged uh, you know, overcome with falls to the dark side. And with Elzar, it's it was so interesting because he it's like, would you call what happened him falling to the dark side, him utilize manipulating the dark side, but coming out of it? It's really interesting. Like, can you have that kind of relationship with the dark side? Um, you can. I think you can. With like I the full there- dark side? Yeah, I think with our conversation that we had over two episodes of talking about the dark side and the concept of like the original George Lucas concept of like once you're on the dark path, like you can always turn away and like that's the the idea. It doesn't always dominate your destiny like Yoda says. Like I feel like that that was sort of our thesis statement of those episodes and 
I feel like you could always turn back if you have that conviction, if you have that understanding of yourself. And perhaps he does. I think that that's interesting because I I don't think I agree with you. Interesting. Because, <laughs> inter- interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think there's a difference, right, between if Elzar had fell, like truly fell to the dark side and like turned on the Jedi in, in a very Anakin manner, right? If, if that is what has happened to him, then of course I believe that he can come back from that. Just like I could believe Markeon can have a redemption story, like anyone can have a redemption story. Um, but the idea of Elzar like kind of using like allowing himself to swim in the dark side when he needs it and then swimming out of it and then swimming back into that deep end and then out of it again it feels like at some point he will not be able to swim out and mm-hmm. i think that is the lore of the dark side and so and i and i think that other jedi and i would have to agree too would um, encourage him not to do that, right? Like you're allowing yourself to be tempted by the dark side in kind of a really big way. And that is, that's not for light and for life. And I think we can debate whether for light and life is a good uh, catchphrase for the Jedi, which I think it is. But I think like with anything, almost like the catchphrase of the Republic, we are all the Republic, it can very easily be manipulated and turned sinister. And I think mm-hmm. that's true for most organizational catchphrases, especially yeah ideological ones (laughs) Um, totally and so i think like the idea of elzar kind of yeah i just i don't i think he could pretend like tell himself that he was fully coming out of it every time again like the, the the metaphor here of swimming like swimming out of the dark side but i think at some point he will drown in it and i think he could come back from that but it's like you can't put yourself back in that place again or else you – it's like that addiction metaphor too that we talk about. I don't know if I'm really explaining that correctly. but No, I think you are. I think that it's a complicated conversation first yeah. off. It's like there is no right answer because we don't know how this ends or anything. But just to kind of aid to your, um, your point, I think it's interesting that Elzar confronts Stalin about yeah. the fact that he touched the dark side when Anakin – wouldn't do that out of fear of judgment and anytime he did do that he was like chided about his you know his closeness to the dark side or any sort of temptations Mm -hmm. and uh that's why he only came to palpatine who wouldn't necessarily who like presented himself as non-judgmental about those kind of things where here i think that stellan wasn't necessarily i don't know i think that he trusts stellan as a friend and there's they have they're on equal footing too because they started at the same time when Obi-Wan and Anakin were not on equal footing because one was a master and one was the apprentice. And one of them the the, the relationship is obviously complicated because there's the burden there of Anakin becoming his apprentice anyway. So it's just interesting because um there's a level of trust that Stalin has uh, that um Elzar has to Stalin that Anakin didn't have and perhaps that will sort of stay with him yeah and help him in the future yeah i was really surprised that elzar actually told stellan kind of so immediately it kind of felt like the second they had a quiet moment elzar said this you know this great phrase of i need help um just like so simple and to the point because in the beginning of the book there's a line from elzar i don't know if it's when he's on ashla or right when he gets to valo something like that but he basically says um he would do what he always did go it alone 
or something like that. Um, and it kind of sets him up as this, like this black sheep out of Avar, Stellan, and Elzar. Uh, yeah. So I thought it was really great that he immediately kind of expressed this thing that had gone wrong, horribly wrong mm-hmm. in his view. Um, and I love too that Stellan like immediately was like, we're going to go to Jeddah. And I guess Jeddah is like the place of like a spa retreat for Jedi at this point (laughs) (laughs) to just go and, you know, wash off the dark side or whatever it is. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Do you remember one of our really early episodes about Tross? I think from 2019, from 2018, 2017 or something like that. It was like, we were talking about um, like Kylo Ren basically in uh, like uh, in prison with the resistance but he was just like he just needed to journal it out. We and we went on <laughs> yeah, a very long tangent about like Kylo's spa day and his journal and meditation for him. <laughs> it was yeah, extensive. You know, everyone needs that. Everyone needs a little <laughs> bit of that self care. So yeah, it's true. Anyway, he needed to go to Jenna. <laughs> yeah, he needed to go to Jenna to journal it out. <laughs> I want to revisit something on along the same lines of what we talked about in Light of the Jedi, and that was the fact that when. The High Republic was being presented to us as fans. They had this great live stream that Star Wars put on on YouTube. And um, I think it was Charles Soule who talked about how one of the major inspirations for the High Republic was the idea of Camelot and specifically the JFK era and how you were sort of promised something amazing that ultimately ended in tragedy. And I think that is very true of the light of the Jedi, especially that's Charles soul's book and everything. Um, and we debated the, like even further, the concept of Camelot, right. And whether or not we're going to see the Elzar, Avar and Stalin triangle in a similar way of King Arthur, Guinevere and Lancelot. And I was pretty thrilled to see that that actually kind of sort of came true and that there is this weird triangle happening and these characters are connected in a pretty similar way to the Arthurian myth and legend and everything like that. So I I was really excited about that. So I really want more. Thinking about that and thinking about their relationships in that context is really helpful for me to even consider how they'll all work together in the end and how, where they're going to go from here. I was wondering if you had any other thoughts on that, because I knew that you didn't come out of this being an Avar and Elzar shipper, and I probably wasn't either. <laughs> okay. I get that. But did you get those vibes? And how did you feel when you kind of saw that manifesting in front of us on the page? I thought the beginning of the book, right, when they kind of confirmed that there was something that had happened was good. And, you know, you you definitely have more of a working knowledge of the Athorian myths than I do. Authorian folklore. Are they considered myths? Yeah. Yeah, you say um, Authorian myth. Yeah. Yeah. Story. Yeah. Um, you definitely have more of a working knowledge of those than I do, even though I was a big fan of the show Merlin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but – I think it, I think the Camelot metaphor still works really well. I feel like I felt it more in Light of the Jedi than I did in yeah. Rising Storm, honestly. But it's hard because I was totally in love with Elzar and Ty together. And I found their relationship <laughs> really interesting. And I hope this is this is the challenge with anything from the High Republic. It's like you get a character in a book and you fall in love with them. 
And then when do they come back? Like in a big way, like, or when, or are they just mentioned in the next book? And you're like, no, I'm like, please do not leave me hanging with Ty. Even even if Elzar is not there, like I just, (laughs) I need to know more about Ty. She's so cool. And Everything with her and Elzar, I thought, was great. The fact that she's this mysterious ex-Jedi, I guess, ex-Padawan, who really knows, and her kind of witnessing Elzar's descent into the dark side for this brief moment, but even kind of understanding how serious it was. I don't know. I thought I thought it was really fascinating, and that's that's what I was super interested in on the shipping front. <laughs> I think that's totally fair. I didn't really ship them. I liked their relationship. Um, I'm willing to ship. <laughs> but and and to your point, I did think that there was a weird like, I don't know if you would call it a force bond or even a dyad of sorts that was happening between them. Oh, a dyad. You know, yeah, it feels like it, it feels like they had a sort of weird force connection that felt reminiscent of things that we saw in the sequel trilogy. They definitely talked about like opening up their minds to one another. Yeah. And there was the whole thing where I I think it was Ty was like, all right, I've I've literally let you in. As far as you're going to go, you're going to have to do the same for me. Right. I mean, hello, that's Ray and Kylo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's like a (laughs) – it's interesting because like when it's presented with Ray and Kylo, it's this automatic, like they immediately see everything about each other. And I remember, you know, in a lot of like fanfic and and even in – like different Star Wars stories and stuff from when we were younger. A lot of fanfic always talks about like the walls in in people's minds who are force users and like there's the wall up so I couldn't really sense his mood or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just remember mm-hmm. this kind of descriptor happening a lot with Jedi and that is that basically feels like what's happening here, but there's like this kind of automatic expectation of vulnerability. Oh, say that three times fast. Automatic <laughs> expectation of vulnerability in order to basically achieve what they're trying to do here in the book, which was ride those creatures and, you know, help save the day. <laughs> um, and it was it was so surprising how quickly they did it. I thought this this is kind of a little kind of veering off topic from what we were talking about with um, Avar and Stellan and Elzar, but I thought. All of the Jedi's inner monologue throughout this book of killing other people I thought was so interesting because they all kind of take a different approach to how they deal with killing their enemies. And and you read one of the quotes earlier from Elzar, right, when he like dips into that dark side where he's like, it's not what I should do, but you know, if they're going to attack us like animals, that's how I'm going to treat them too. But Mm -hmm. a lot of the other Jedi take it from this approach of like, And they repeat this constantly, like, if I didn't have to kill them, I wouldn't. Like, this is the only way. This is the only path. I hate this, but I have to do this. I hate this, but I have to do this. And in some parts of the book, to me, it almost read as this, like, holier-than-thou kind of tone in the midst of this, like, literal life-and-death situation. But, like, the Jedi believe it 100%. And I just – it's not something that – this like indoctrination aspect of it we don't really see in the prequel uh trilogy as much i think but i was kind of like struck with just how much the jedi were talking about it like particularly like indira talked about it a lot in this book and then elzar is wrestling with it too as are the other jedi of like this is 
Like we are never supposed to kill our enemies unless we absolutely have to. And all of the Jedi, when they do make the kill, the kill shot or whatever it is, they immediately kind of take this millisecond of reflection of, you know, that life entered the force or I felt their life leave their body or something like that. And um, I don't know, it was, it was good, but it was also like, oh my God, like they are like Elzar said, like they're literally slaughtering you like animals. Like you have to go, go, mm-hmm. go, go, go. And I think mm-hmm. that is what you were alluding to earlier in our conversation about like the complexity of this book. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah the, the Jedi are right. Like, of course we should, right? We value every life, but also these are the Nile and they're the bad guys and they clearly do not value yours. So mm-hmm. maybe put that on the back burner and uh, <laughs> get going. But it's like, oh my God, like, Am I what am I thinking the right way about this as a reader? It was it was really interesting. And the way that and I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but or a monologue, but the way that Eldar approached Ty, I thought was so cool. And this is part of why I really want to see more of Ty. Because once he finds out that she was a part of the Jedi Order, this is after he's done his whole dark side thing, he kind of appeals to Ty to help him and says, I need to make amends, and so do you. And I thought this word amends was such an interesting word to use because, you know, Elzar obviously feels a lot of guilt over his um, use of the dark side. And he, right, he feels very guilty by it and feeling like he needs to basically ask for forgiveness from, and, and another character in the book also talks about asking for forgiveness from the Force, which is not a way I've, I don't think I've ever heard the Force talked about of like, like like God, like seeking forgiveness from the force, from an action. And that's not really how I think about the force. But um, Elzar talks about making amends. And he assumes that that is something Ty would want to do too, even though he has no idea how or why she left the Jedi Order. But he is like appealing to her from this, from within this more or less religious organization of you can ask forgiveness, make amends and come back. And like, like this could be it for you to come back without even really realizing that Ty maybe doesn't want to come back, never did, maybe never even wanted to be a part of it too. You know, I don't know. I just, it was, it was really interesting. And it really got me thinking a lot about like, what are my own morals in this situation? And how do I approach all of these characters and the choices that they're making? I totally agree. And I think that's what makes this book really strong. I don't really want to read a book that is like, here's how you should feel. And this is what you should take away from it. I like this exploration of the gray here in between. And especially in this like fake galaxy that I can sort of have this um, like fictional exploration of these extreme conflicts, you know, I think it's really valuable. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I think that Kevin Scott really does this super well. And I am so excited for his further Star Wars stories in the High Republic and beyond. Yeah, me too. I, yeah, that ending was a doozy. Um, I don't feel (laughs) like I uh, praised Belle enough in our discussion so far, but he... Just the the brightest spot in my High Republic heart. I love him. I feel like he grew up so much in this book, which is saying a lot because, right, it's hard for me to keep track of all the characters. But I really felt like he grew and he um, he was he was like so brave. And I, I don't know. I love I, I think like in the past 
year, two years, I've just become really aware and appreciative of like these really young, brave characters. Like, yeah. you know, Omega in Bad Batch, we talk about her a lot as being very like supremely brave and like courageous and we see that from Grogu too on a lot of different levels and now like young Padawans like Belle and um you know of course like characters like Luke were young when we met them but they were still like older teenagers and so having like Ahsoka I think is one of the last like main really young characters that we've had you know of course Anakin and the Phantom Menace and stuff like that but you know it's just it's. I think it's great seeing like a young person be brave, and I think that Bell really pushed himself to his limit in this book. And like he acted, he acted like the kind of Jedi that I want to believe in. And totally, I thought it, it was just he was so great, and everything with Loden just it broke my heart so much. And their connection to each other when he was like, "No, Loden is here." One the plot twist that Loden was still alive, I was mm-hmm. like, wait, what? <laughs> it was so good and so evil that Markeon had him and was yeah. doing all – oh, my God. It was awful. And and then it was awful, too, when him and Belle were finally reunited and that moment when Belle finally, like, feels him enter the force. It was just – it broke my heart. I love Belle. I love Ember. I'm obsessed. Well, I really loved – about Bell that he had this conviction that something wasn't right about Loden. Yeah. And that he throughout the entire book was like there's a, it was almost like this phantom limb almost with him where it was like mm. I can't possibly mourn his death because it just doesn't feel right. And he was so correct obviously because he wasn't dead. And this relationship between master and apprentice is one of those relationships of like when you talk about Star Wars Master and Apprentices, it's such a um, heralded relationship with throughout Star Wars, right? And for me, I was like, this is the perfect one. This is exactly how I wanted it. I want it to be explored. You know, I think this is like the one that you put on the pedestal, and of course, it ends in tragedy because that's how how Star Wars is. But I, for me, it was just it the way, like you said, like the bravery and um, the risks that he took in order to kind of, I don't know if he was just like so sad <laughs> and not over, over the, the death of his master. And, um, but he kept going and I thought that was yeah. really great. And also I just really love Ember. I just love that we have a, a Star Wars dog now. <laughs> I just think it's so great. It blows it's so fire. Great. It blows fire. Like breathes fire and goes yeah. for it. It's just so great. The fact that Ember is so empathetic towards Belle and so protective too. I think it really helped reinforce a lot of the emotions that were happening with Belle and helped me understand them better because sometimes pets can see your emotions better than even you can and are reacting to those too. So it even broke my heart even more because I just find that adorable. And <laughs> I I don't know. I just really loved it. I loved that relationship. And you're right. Like, I don't think we can say enough good things about that. For me, like you said, the standout characters in this book were Elzar and Belle for me. Um, yeah. I bet you'd say the same. I don't yeah. know. And Ty, I guess, too. But like in terms of like the mains, because Ty wasn't necessarily a main. Um, those were the ones where I was like f- flipping the page, excited to see their point of view. Yeah, exactly. That that scene where uh, Belle is rescuing the group from the 
from the sinking ship or from the sinking island in the fair. Um, and when he like let everyone else go ahead and they all left him and he's like holding up the pieces with the force. Sob. And he had to tell Ember, he was like, go on, Ember. Like, you have to lead them to safety now or something like that. I was so nervous. I was, I was so nervous. Like, and, then, and then, like, we switched to, like, five chapters of, like, Stellan and Elzar and Ty. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is good, but. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Mel? <laughs> yeah. I'm enjoying this, but. <laughs> but. Gamma. Yeah. Um, and and we're, I feel like we're kind of wrapping up our discussion here. But just one other aside is that I really loved the addition of the Torgrudas in the this whole book I yes. thought um it was really cool that whole relationship and kind of this uh like on- convoy of the queen and her um like cohort coming to the Republic fair and kind of this uh what's the word like networking in a way to see if they're going to be a part of the Republic now I thought was really great they also had you mentioned this earlier about like the the whole like colonialism theme of all of this and how I I feel like it is something that needs to be brought up a lot more because it, it hasn't really been, um, not in a big way. But there is one line from the Torgrudas that come where Chancellor So is talking about, you know, the core worlds going out to the outer rim and mentioning like the planet the Torgrudas are from. And um, they make a point to say, like, okay, like you call it the outer rim, like that's not how we refer to it. Like that's the core to us, you know? Yes. And it was a very pointed line and I thought it was great. Um, and I hope that there's more of that because this is a really big, uh, like clearly there's a parallel here that they're drawing, uh, but I don't think the characters have really internalized it to think, is this right how we are talking about the galaxy and planets and and all of that like is this correct in how we're thinking about these things and so i really appreciated that line from them again it was just one line but it was really good and i hope we see more of that in the future no i thought that it was really interesting to bring up the tagurtas in this and i really liked the dynamic there and um you're so right that sort of optics about how, how you talk about the galaxy as like what is the center of the galaxy uh, I thought that was a really good question that was posed. And again, I I hope that they talk more about this and explore this theme later, because I still think we're in this era of the Jedi living their life really earnestly and thinking that they are doing the best possible. But when does it all break down? And personally, I feel like that's when the conversation will reach ahead um, in these yeah. books. And that's when it's going to be explored the most. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to describe the Jedi right now is very earnest and yeah. like for light and life. And there is this like very like naive earnestness to it. Yeah. And it's it's a little admirable because you kind of – it's not a little admirable. It's pretty admirable because you want that perfection that they see in themselves and the galaxy to actually be true but just because we know star wars and where it ends up we know that it's not true so that's what makes it interesting at least to me yeah and we know that other characters even at this time have had negative experiences within the jedi ty is an example we don't know exactly what happened with her but clearly something like she kind of alludes to this to to I th- I guess other Jedi that she was with when she was in the order or a part of it whatever it was that went horribly wrong and there's um that really old Jedi named Porter I think 
Yes, quarter angle. Yeah. Yeah, when he's riding on the back of vectors, as you do in the middle of battle, he like has this flashback or this like vision of, is it him that has the vision of like basically something dark from long ago uh, that he's basically, I guess, like buried deep in his subconscious. And I think that Indira uh, like picks up on it or sees pieces of it. Um, but then Porter, it's like, it's when Porter was trying to convey his plan to all the other Jedi through the force. And Indira yeah. like picks up on something else or we see it from Porter's perspective. I can't remember. But there is like something, it's kind of like a throwaway line almost of just like something kind of darker that Porter knows has happened within the Jedi, at least what I assume within the Jedi years earlier. So it's not, they're not completely leak proof right now, I guess I could say, (laughs) but there is this kind of belief that um, they make the right decision. And I thought we referenced it a lot, but there's that passage in line of the Jedi with the Jedi council. Y'all poof is there. They're all there and they're all talking about what to do. And yeah. um, it's a really good passage of insight into the Jedi Order at the time and also a little bit of their past, too. And it goes back to that conversation about are they warriors? Do they align themselves with something like the Republic? Do they not? What does that mean? Et cetera. And it's this conversation they're constantly having. But they always at this time, I think they always think that they are choosing the right path because the force willed it to be so. And yeah. perhaps throughout the rest of this era, they will find that that is not the case yeah i missed a conversation like that in this book i'm gonna be honest um but that would that i guess makes the one in the light of the jedi much more special all right are we ready to move on to part three is there anything else we've missed no i think that's it i mean i'm sure we missed a lot this book is loaded yeah (laughs) so yeah there's uh, a lot we miss but is that all in our notes (laughs) yes yes that's all that we wanted to talk about yeah (laughs) listen big deal you got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Welcome to part three, where Caitlin and I are going to give each other quotes that we don't know what they say, and we are going to have to react to them. It is a spiritual practice called Lectio Divina, and we have siphoned it down to something that is far from what Lectio Divina is, but it's still the same principle is there. We surprise the other with a quote, they react to it, and then we analyze it. So... Um, Caitlin, do you want to go first? Do you want me to give you a quote first? What do you want? You know, I'll go first. I think my first quote builds well off of our the tail end of our conversation. Okay, let's do it. Just now. So it's in it's on page 20, and it's Belle being sad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, he, Loden, would also remind you how a Jedi faces the death of those they love, Indira continued, and Belle's smile immediately dropped away. Because Jedi can love Belle. We're not droids, nor should we ever be. We are living creatures rich in the Force, with everything that brings. Joy, affection, and yes, grief. Experiencing such emotions is part of life. It is light. But, but while we experience such emotions, we should never let them rule us. A Jedi is the master of their emotions, never a slave. You miss what you might have shared with Loden if he was here. That is natural. I miss him too. And so we acknowledge that hurt. We understand it, even embrace it, but eventually we let it go. Bell said, looking back at the innovator, so Indira couldn't see the tears she must have known were in his eyes. The the Lothian reached out, placing a comforting hand on Bell's forearm. I didn't say it was easy, just like a lateral roll. Ugh, I love this quote so much. Immediately my emotions are 
I love the way that this is being talked about and described. And I think that it was a really sort of kind thing for Indira to say to Belle at this point. And for me, I, I remember reading it and kind of gasping at this concept of the quote of because Jedi can love Belle. We're not droids, nor should we ever be. I thought that was just brilliant because this goes back to our conversation about this exploration of how the Jedi are really open to talking about these kind of things like emotions and letting things go versus um, the prequel Jedi are dismissive about these kind of things, not necessarily embracing of emotions and how one should let them go. They're not interested. The prequel Jedi are not interested in the process. They just want the end game. And for me, actually, like if I could get a little personal here, when I read this, I think about how in Catholicism, part of like the principles of Catholicism, at least in the Jesuit teachings, is that life is suffering and we need to be thankful for the fact that life is suffering and how we carry on throughout the entire or throughout our entire lives with this notion that life is suffering and still that suffering and that experiencing of the suffering is what makes us human and that ability to have that emotion is what makes us different from like a robot or a rock or something inanimate right yeah. and for me i found that to be really similar here because also at the end of the day like we're talking about a religion here when it comes to the jedi also so i do think it is similar and those are my emotions when it came to this quote yeah i i thought that was i thought that was great what you said and it makes it yeah i think you saying that the jedi are not interested in the process when it comes to the prequel trilogy is like the synthesis of four years of us talking about this. So true. You just so like true. Dave filoni our entire podcast. How do you feel? Pretty good. Honestly, when I said it, I was like, I feel like I, that sums it up. I touched on something. Well, yeah. folks, thank you for joining Sky Talkers. It's been a great five years. We literally have nothing else to bring to the table now. <laughs> yeah, that's the difference is that by the time we get to the prequel trilogy, the Jedi have like distilled this down to the end product of uh, letting it go, letting all emotion go. And um, it makes me think that the part that I highlighted was a Jedi is the master of their emotions, never a slave. And of course, we see we basically see Anakin become a slave to his emotions in Revenge of the Sith. Um, And so it makes me wonder if we're going to see that happen again in the High Republic era. And this will be one of those dominoes that falls that gets us closer to the prequel trilogy Jedi order that we see. Um, Because it does make me wonder if we'll see. And what I've been thinking about while we've been talking is if this happens on a grand scale in a public forum, because the the Rising Storm specifically talked a lot about like reporters and and the lies that I did too. But um, I feel like I noticed that a lot in the Rising Storm of like reporters and journalists and the news and like news anchors and um, mm-hmm. you know Stellan being the face of this event that happened at the Republic Fair. Um, everything is kind of happening on the galactic stage, and especially Chancellor So saying that the Jedi should be a symbol now to the galaxy and align themselves with the Republic even even more so than they already do. Um, it makes me wonder if someone, perhaps Elzar, if I had to, if I was thinking about this book specifically, um, becomes a slave to their emotions and uh, 
can't master his emotions basically and it happens in the public eye. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It would be interesting and again that's like some wild speculation but um, yeah, this is this is like what we – this is what we all want to do, right? It's like <laughs> <laughs> acknowledge the feelings that upset you that are not good feelings. You have to acknowledge them and sit with them and live with it in order to let it go because otherwise you're just suppressing those feelings and that doesn't actually solve your problem. But like saying I can't be sad in this moment or I can't be stressed or I shouldn't be anxious – that doesn't like get rid of the anxiety or the stress or the sadness. Like you have to say, I'm sad. Why am I sad? Because of such and such. Okay. I need to feel sad right now. Mm -hmm. And all right, now I need to make, like do something to pull myself up again because I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we like. That's, that's the ideal. Right. But that doesn't happen. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But we see Belle really try. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what makes his character so great. Yeah. I love him. Okay, you ready for yours? Yes. It is on page 412. Okay, so it starts on page 411, but I'll just start there, okay? It's just like a half a sentence, basically. It's basically when Belle and Loden at the end for them. He had been so big, so imposing, and yet now was little more than skin and bones. Belle drew a sharp breath as he saw what happened to Loden's Leku. They were gone, leaving nothing but cauterized stumps. Look what they've done to you, Bell said, overcome with emotions. What they've taken. They took nothing, Loden told him. Nothing that matters. The important thing is what they couldn't touch, what they can never erase. You and me, Bell, the way it's supposed to be. Okay, so this makes me feel very sad, just knowing what is coming. But I think that this passage has like the dual emotions of like the relief that they're together and like happiness that they're together of course before you know what happened what how it ends but also i think it's very visual in just how uh much loden has been tortured basically like cauterized stumps of his leku mm-hmm. it just it like it oh it it's, it hurts to read it much less think about it and visualize it and talking about his skeletal hand grabbing his lightsaber um and bell talking about how light he was and how he didn't weigh anything anymore nothing more than skin and bones it just it it's really uh like i can really picture it very well and knowing loden and bell's relationship from the other books it like loden was larger than life and to see him kind of whittle down to this but then he still has all of this spirit and that's what he tells Belle, this like kind of last lesson that he gives Belle. Like it doesn't matter what they take from me physically. It's what matters. It's what's inside that matters, right? And that can feel really corny and cheesy, but it's really true because he was still – like his relationship with Belle was still intact even after thinking he had died. He and mm-hmm. Belle were still able to communicate and have these last moments together. And I don't know. It's like you see that Belle has these – really important people around him in Indira and in Loden. And I think we see Bell kind of um, – he's really excited about Stellan and, like, meeting Stellan and, 
like views him very highly and stuff. But then, you know, these people that are closest to him are the ones that are actually imparting this like really good, solid wisdom for him. Not that Stalin doesn't have any of that, but like these two moments that we've talked about with Indira and now Lonin, um, they really like it's something that I know that Bell is going to take with him, both what Indira teaches him about emotions and this moment with Lonin about they can't they can't take what's inside of you. Like you are the only one that can control that. And I think that's going to be unfortunately really important for Belle in the future, especially at the end of this book when Loden does actually die. Yeah. I don't think I can sum it up any better than that. That was great. <laughs> I'm sad. Yeah, same. All right. Your, uh, your next quote is on page 263. I am there. Okay. This starts actually on page 262 near the bottom. Elzar drew the word to him, hugging it close as if it was a life buoy in the sea. There was always another way, always hope. He would go to Stalin and Avar, tell them what he had done, how he had touched the darkness, used the darkness, and for a moment reveled in it. His friends would understand. They would see what had brought Elzar to this point, and they would help. There would be no more secrets, no more going in alone, no more distractions. Even if he had to become a Padawan again, he would not walk this path. He was Jedi. I read that and I'm like, my first reaction to that is that's not going to happen. The conviction of his friends would understand, they would see what brought Elzar to this point. I feel like only more so in the next couple of books will Elzar be continuously misunderstood. Just in terms of like speculation, when you talk about Ty, my brain kind of keeps going when with this whole like force connection and like them getting in each other's brains and things like that. Does like is Ty the the resource that he needs for his own like suffering and his pain versus the friends that he's known for so long? I feel like he will be judged in the future, if not now, but later. But also on the flip side, the conviction of being able to turn away is admirable. And I want this for Elzar so bad. Like I want this for all characters to be like everyone around me is going to understand everything wrong that I did. And I'm going to own up to it and I'm going to own my mistakes and I'll be better going forward because I am a Jedi. I am a better person than this. And for that reason, I don't know. I just know Star Wars. so I feel like it's going to end in tragedy, but I feel like this is the dream, right? I don't know if yeah. you feel this way, but like this is the the expectation of, you know, hope at the end, and which is what he says, right? There's always hope. There's always something else. There's always something that you can change. And the, you didn't read this line, but the one right before it says, these waters were deep. These waters would drown him unless, dot, 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 unless. And then that was the word that Elzar drew to him, you know, hugging it as close as if it were a life buoy in the sea. There was always another way, always hope. And that, that concept of an unless, um, that's almost like a but, you know, in, in a sentence, yeah. it's dangling, it's there. And it is this hope, this like next, what's the next chapter? What's the next point? What's the next story? And I really like that. I also um, like how that those words are arranged on this page and things like that. I always love that. I, I don't think I talk enough about that, but <laughs> the way you read it and the syntax of it all, I think is also really important. Yeah, it makes me wonder. I think you're right in the sense that as we move further along, people will not understand the choices that Eldar made. And this is this will 
I think that could be a reason that pushes him further away. You know, like Stellan is on his side because Stellan is his best friend and is like, yeah, we're, we're going to Jeddah. We're, we're going for the spa weekend. We're going to sort this out. But <laughs> is everyone else going to feel the same way? Like, I, to be honest, I don't see Avar responding that way. From from the little I know of her, right? Yeah, I feel like I'm turning in. Like I don't mean to be like anti Avar. I just like <laughs> I don't really you just know don't her. know that much about her. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and like it, this doesn't seem like something she would be on board with. But you rereading that first part about um, the waters were deep; these waters are drawn him in less and less. And using the word hope as the life buoy. Um, what happens when Elzar loses hope when that mm. buoy isn't there anymore for him? And mm. I think, you know, talking about the rising storm, water, storm, Elzar views the forest as water. These things are connected. Um, there's something very intense coming their way with the leveler and more. It's just, uh, is Elzar going to be someone who loses hope in the end? Is if like, if we're speculating about him turning to the dark side, if he drowns in this dark, in this deep end. And there is no life buoy for him. And maybe Stellan's gone. Avar doesn't believe him. None of the other Jedi do. The Nile are like, you don't even have the Force anymore. You can't even swim anymore because I've taken the Force away from you. I don't know. It's interesting to think that maybe the only Force that Elzar could then access at that point would be the dark side of the Force. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. Could happen. It could happen. Interesting story. <laughs> I'm here <laughs> for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the annotation though that I wrote down for this whole passage was desperation. I read a lot mm. of desperation in Elzar's whole like monologue here. Like, there's hope. I'm gonna find them. They're gonna help me. Uh, they would understand. I'll do whatever yes. I have to. Um, yes. And the way that the sentences are short and quick and um, like what yeah. I was mentioning before about the syntax of it all. Like, it is so desperate. It is so rushed. It is so I. Need like help. What am I going to do? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so your next one is on page 55. Rill liked Stellan. He was a bit stiff, sure, a bit earnest, and on days when she wasn't feeling generous, a little too keen on the sound of his own voice. But she could tell that his heart was definitely in the right place. Of course, it didn't hurt that he was a handsome son of a blaster. Oh, no, not at all. That chiseled jaw beneath the dashing beard, those blue eyes, and the smile. That smile. He was. That was the real killer right there. No wonder the council had decided to make him their poster boy. I was. This That's was it. when I was like, yeah, I like this book. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> this, just, this just makes me laugh. I think this is a fun passage of just, it's, you know, the guy that's out of reach. So she thinks. And he's just he's he's super cute. He's super handsome. And I love the idea, too, that she like recognizes that he a lot of people have this perception in The Rising Storm that Stellan is like a, a borderline narcissist um, mm-hmm. and that he, you know, he likes the sound of his own voice. He um, is going to make the decisions here. Like he's the one that's going to be on camera and all of that stuff. Uh, but Stellan doesn't really have that view of himself. And he. Um, I don't think that would be his choice if he were call- really calling the shots. But I think like Rill says that the council made him their poster boy. Um, and I love the idea, too, that the council is like, yeah, we're going to use Stalin. He's super hot. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, it, that they really that that was part of their decision making. <laughs> that it wasn't just like, oh, we should use like Yarl Poof for our poster oh my boy. God. Like, oh, we're going to use Stalin. <laughs> 
Well, I think it's really interesting, actually, because in the Revenge of the Sith novelization, Anakin is described as the poster boy. Yeah, and, with no um, Yes, there's a deleted line in, I think that was filmed with Obi-Wan and Anakin right when they got off the transport when they're at the Senate, right before Anakin sees Padme again after the Invisible Hand crash and everything. And um, she, I think he says, like, you wanted me to be your poster boy. What am I just like the poster boy for the Jedi? And um, Obi-Wan's like, yeah, like, you're so handsome. That's why. Something similar to that, right? And so the concept <laughs> of the Jedi having a poster boy, but the difference is that the Jedi were sort of reluctant to have Anakin be the poster boy of anything, right? Yeah. Like, they were not super supportive of Anakin basically at all, despite putting him on the front lines all the time. But with Stellan, I think they're pleased to have Stalin as the poster boy. <laughs> and I think it's like, it's just, it's just an opposite, I guess. Um, that's, I don't even know if that was intended by Kevin Scott, but it definitely made me think of that. Yeah. And I agree with you that I don't think Stalin would think of him this way. Um, but I do think that he enjoys sort of walking around the Jedi temple like he sort of owns the place. I do think he enjoys that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he would <laughs> say he doesn't, but he does. Yes. <laughs> All right, so your last quote from me is on page 252, and okay. this is not a serious quote. I feel like I had some heavy ones, <laughs> and this one is not heavy. I hope you – wow, all of my quotes are basically bell-focused. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope you find him, she said sincerely, her teeth chattering from the cold. Bell shrugged off his long outer robes. Here, wear this. She glanced at the cloak in surprise. No, I couldn't. Please, you look cold. I am. Thank you. She took the robe and pulled it over her shoulders, smiling as the dark material all but swamped her. I thought they'd be rougher. I mean, you're monks, aren't monks, aren't you? He returned the grin. More or less. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, I liked it. Um, my reaction is that I I want to try on a Jedi cloak now. You yeah, know? <laughs> I, just, I guess I would have thought they were rougher too, but yeah, me too. That it's but like a Snuggie. <laughs> I mean, no wonder the Jedi wear them. Right. I mean, they, they get would. Cold it, on I don't ships. think. Right. Well, you know, space is cold. Yeah, so. space is cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really have a reaction to that. Besides, <laughs> I want to try on the robes, and I liked this too. I liked this. This is another one of those good things about Star Wars books that you get little interactions like this that are just so joyful and funny, and yeah. <laughs> things that we're all thinking too. And I like that in universe, they're like, "You guys are space monks." Like, yeah. you guys are monks. Uh, stop taking yourself so seriously. Yeah, and you <laughs> can't have, like, comfortable robes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They must only be, like, rough wool. Anyway, that okay. was it. <laughs> I loved it. All right. So your last quote for me is on page 220 – I mean, 127. Oh, okay. We talked about this earlier, but it's fine. Elzar's mood darkened, and the, for the first time in months, he felt the shadows of his vision return. Avar wasn't coming. He had been so looking forward to spending time with her again, to hearing her voice, her laugh, without the hiss of a hollow projector. No wonder Stellan had told him not to wait. He'd known she wasn't on the shuttle. That sanctimonious puff bag. Well, first off, I'm going to use sanctimonious puff bag as an insult from here on out. Because I think it's perfect. That is, <laughs> what did you say earlier? Delicious. That it's is delicious. delicious. <laughs> sanctimonious puff bag. I mean, scruffy looking nerf herder versus sanctimonious puff bag. It's a, it's, that's a hard mashup. That's, it's a war. That yeah. is a war. <laughs> like, who do you pick in that one? <laughs> 
yeah, we did kind of talk about this earlier, but it's a good passage to read. And just again, like this is informing a lot of my thoughts about Avar is from Elzar. And uh, yeah, him finding out that she wasn't coming. The fact that she nor Stellan really told him ahead of time when clearly they know that he was looking forward to it. It's just, it's a little, it's not nice is the best mm. way to put it. It's just, it's not nice. But also him referencing the hiss of the hollow projector, it really makes me think of that knowing like the Annie Dalla of it all, that Anakin and Padme talk through hollow projector a lot of the time, oh especially oh in that last scene in Clone Wars that we see of them talking to each other <laughs> with so um, Anakin <laughs> like hiding in the ship <laughs> and Rex standing guard. <laughs> Outside. The best ever. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> yeah, it really is the best. So it does kind of paint things in that kind of romantic light. So yeah, but I'd be interested to know what they actually talk about and uh, how much of this is really just like Elzar's imagination or how he wants like to like he wants to think of this as romantic and Avar's like, what do you mean? We're just like we're just catching up. Mm-hmm. I think this is what I mean about how the marketing of Avar Chris is working alongside of the narrative of Avar Chris inside of the book and how there's just so many <laughs> um, removed thoughts about who Avar is without actually seeing exactly who she is. Like even just seeing her through her hollow projector and like what she's doing for the Jedi and everything, it seems like they're not even that connected. And also Stellan keeping this from Elzar. It's like to go back to the whole love triangle um, question whether or not they're going to explore this you have to admit that there is a triangle of um inequalities there and uh one has to you know wonder how that's all gonna shake out yeah definitely Ooh, that was fun yeah. i love this this section and i really loved this book i if i could rank the um four well three um books that we are have sorry, talked about yeah, sorry. Let me just rephrase that. If I could rank the three books that we've talked about on the podcast so far, I would say that Rising Storm is my number one of those. And then Into the Dark and then Light of the Jedi. Yeah, I think that's probably the same for me. Um, Out of the Shadows is coming soon and it could shake up the the, the ranking. The ranking, I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that. So <laughs> I'm excited to talk about that one. And I'm excited for you to read that. And then me know nothing about the progress of you reading. <laughs> And then come on the show and discuss it. Uh, I have started it. Um, oh, my God. See, I didn't even know. It's <laughs> <laughs> too perfect. <laughs> Normal people are like, hey, I just started <laughs> out of the shadows. I know you finished that already. What did you think? Like, can't wait to get into it. Instead, you're like, I just started it. Silence. <laughs> I, I just started it. I'm only like 20 pages in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good i'm excited to talk about that one <laughs> so yeah I, yeah so far so good i like it so far <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's gonna be good to talk about that one too so yeah uh let us know uh what you guys thought of the rising storm how do you feel what were your thoughts about it do you think elzar is gonna fully turn to the dark side is all of this a red herring <laughs> i think it, there's a possibility i mean there's 20 20- lost 20s and i don't think they're all gonna happen in the high republic some of them have already happened because some of them have already happened so like how many slots do we have how many slots left (laughs) (laughs) yeah in the prologue in the prologue elzar mentions it um first he had consulted i flipped it already because of course i highlighted it 
Um, first, he had consulted the archives in the Great Temple, poring over countless text files and holocrons in the collection, even going so far as attempting to decipher the mysteries of the Gagarin Codex, the ancient grimoire whose texts had confounded linguists for thousands of years. Even then, sitting in the archives under the watchful gaze of the statues of the lost, Elzer had heard the screams in the back of his mind, seeing the faces of the slain in every reflective surface or passing Padawan. They're not even called the Lost 20. Like, does it, is there just the Lost 1 or are there hundreds? of lost this raises the question is ty in there (laughs) and just it confounds me and if anyone's gonna give me a dedicated story to the lost 20 it's gonna be the higher public it very well could be kevin scott and i would like to see it happen me too (laughs) what if oh my god this is just like a wild theory what if one of our um nile are actually an ex-jedi and no one knows it. Wouldn't that be so cool? That would be so cool. If it was Lorna <laughs> that would be so cool. in Kevin Scott audio oh, yeah. drama? Anyway. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yep. Anyway. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it and you have enjoyed the rising storm. And yeah, let us know. You can find us online on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, where we have brand new uh, SkyTalkers merch on there with our logo, our updated logo we got last year. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out on our website. Seen a lot of people get some of their new merchant and it's very exciting to see pictures. So if you do order yeah, it something, it's like, it's I so cannot exciting. express to you how much this makes our day. So <laughs> if you do order something and uh, want to send us a picture of it through any of these social media channels, even via email, we would love to see it. Um, but yes, uh, so check out our merchandise there. And you can also find us on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, we would really, really love if you took a couple seconds to go and leave us a rating or write us out a review too, because that helps other people find our show and join in on the Star Wars conversation. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can also head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there and how to get involved in our wonderful discord community yes and i want to say a huge thank you to these patrons another skywalker blast points efrain hannah lauren brendan arzo nikki dave cat froppy lola Lindsay, rad ashley Catherine, nanami molly colin logan sophie and patricia thank you so much for supporting us your support means the world Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.